Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Alex Clark and Lucy Dallas, the TLS's arts editor, is here with me on Let Us Be Frank About It, Lucy, a slightly shonky line. Hello. If I cut out at points within the podcast, it's not because I'm not 100% invested in what's going on. It's because I have got a little bit of, of a connectivity problem, I think, today. I like um, to feel that, that listeners know this is how it's real and authentic and and deeply felt and we don't let tiny things like microphones put us off. Hello, Lucy. I should say welcome back. You've been away. I have been away. It's very nice to be back. I, hit, I, I see you managed brilliantly without me. <laughs> well, we managed, but we'd never say brilliantly. And I see, or rather hear, that you have been gallivanting around and going to gardens. Did go to one to one garden, one great garden, world famous, I think, um, which I had never been to reprehensibly. I went to Great Dixter, Christopher Lloyd's garden, which I'd read all about, um, but never actually seen. And it was a beautiful, beautiful day. And I was just I was knocked out by it. It's magic. Have you been? I've never been. And I'd love to. Must go. Well, let's try and waggle it so that we can do an episode of Turning Leaves uh, at Great Dixter. We'll sit sit in the garden and talk about books. How about that? I think it'd be a great dereliction of duty if we didn't do it from there. Let's do that. Did you did you read a lot on your holiday? I didn't read as much as, not that much is my honest answer. I mean, because I read quite a lot, you know, at work, sometimes I don't always or I don't read the same sort of thing necessarily. Anyway, I'm chuntering. What I did read, I read a bit of um, science fiction, catching up on the old science fiction, on a Hugo and Nebula Award winner that I hadn't been aware of, uh, a writer called Martha Wells. And I was. it struck me that, because this, this, the, the, this series of books is told from the point of view of a, um, a robot, sort of robot, mostly, well, all robot, but they're clearly acquiring feelings and things like that and working out what to do with them and I was just struck by the sophistication of of the of the level of kind of thought and and feeling and narrative and all ramifications all those sorts of things that you've got get in science fiction that you've had for years now actually and 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 you know on the news when you hear about AI it's just sort of people shrieking about they're going to take over the world or is my toaster going to attack me you know that kind of thing um and you would think that nobody knew anything about it or had thought anything about it other than 
because nobody's asked the science fiction the writers. Te- they've they've just they've been exploring this so brilliantly for so many years. At the moment, there's a crop of, I would say, from about Anne Leckie onwards, there's a crop of brilliant, brilliant women who are writing um, things about stuff from the point of view of, you know, it's either from the point of view it's a ship with distributed intelligence and then it loses most of its distribution packets and how does it feel having a single point of intelligence, a bit like a human. Um, how do they make relationships? There's a whole fascinating thing about gender, because if you have a, a, a an android or a bot or whatever, you, they can have no gender. Um, they can not care about it. They can choose a gender. Do you know what I mean? There's, there's just it's there's so many fascinating um, byways and explorations. I mean, thought experiments. They're thought experiments, as as are all novels, I suppose. But these ones in particular. So I think you know. I don't know. I just feel that, it, that that we should remember that people have been writing and thinking about this for a long time, and they're writing brilliant stuff right now. So you know, get out there, get out there, and well, do a bit uh, less air. You've you've kind of you've kind of inspired me to do that because these are not writers who I who I'm very aware of, and I suppose when I've experienced things like AI in fiction, it's been through novels like Machines Like Me by Ian McEwan or Kazuo Ishiguro's. Clara and the Sun, you know, those more more recent kind of novels where people are exploring artificial intelligence and its intersection with human dynamic and human relationships. Um, Lucy, I'm going to ask you, you I think it's very bad of me when I read about this thing, which I believe is called Chat GPT. Or it could be GTP. I'm not sure. And I think GPT, I I don't know what that stands for. No, I don't either. Absolutely no idea. It seems to be able to write things. I think, well, could it write? Could it write my book reviews if I'm very short of time? Don't say that to me. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I'm the wrong person to ask that question. Can we just say that we would like all of our reviewers to actually write their reviews themselves, please? That's that's official. I'm going to say that's an official TLS line. We'll run it through our plagiarizer, our chat GPT um, sensitizer. <laughs> Right, without further ado, because I feel I'm getting myself into a you know, zone of unemployment here. Coming up on this week's show, Boyd Tonkin has been to see Complicite's stage adaptation of Olga Tokarczuk's Drive Your Plough Over the Bones of the Dead. And Barnaby Phillips goes in search of the source of the Nile. But first, you may remember that last December we talked to Simon McBurney, the artistic director of the theatre company Complicite. And one of the things we talked about was the forthcoming production of Complicité's imagining of Drive Your Plough Over the Bones of the Dead, the novel by Olga Tokarczuk. Tokarczuk won the Nobel Prize in 2018 for what the committee called a narrative imagination that with encyclopedic passion represents the crossing of boundaries as a form of life, which is a pretty good description of her work to hand it to the committee. So how to bring an intensely literary and complex book to life on stage? Well, Boyd Tonkin went along to see the show for us and wrote us a lovely piece, and we're delighted that he's here to talk about it with us. Boyd, many thanks for joining us. Well, it's great to be here. Thanks. So the way they brought the book to life, you you talk about, you make a very interesting point about their methods as a company and how that works to, uh, with literary texts. So it might seem unexpected. Can you Can you explain that for us? Yes, well, of course, Complicité are now 40 years old. They started in 1983. And in their early days, there was a lot of rather too simplistic talk um, for my taste about how they were 
challenging all the kind of text-based obsessions of British theatre. In other words, they were a company rooted in mime, in movement, in total theatre, if you like, um, in a a multi-sensory experience. And so the proponents of this approach said, on the other hand, you had rather kind of stiff, wooden, old-school British actors just um, declaiming uh, lines in a way that that, uh, felt a bit like, I don't know, the the, um, Stratford in the 1950s. And to, to my mind, this was always a bit of a false binary, because Complicite, they were rooted in a mime tradition. They had studied with um, Jacques Lecoq in Paris. But on the other hand, they were also very, very literary. They chose really interesting literary works uh, in order to to bring them to the stage. For instance, um, The Street of Crocodiles by the amazing sort of proto-surrealist Polish writer Bruno Schultz or Haruki Murakami, uh, The Elephant Vanishes, um, or even Bulgakov, The Master and Margarita. And what they did was not just adaptation. It wasn't kind of gutting a novel and turning it into a script. It was more like a complete envisioning of what that novel might or story might be like on stage. And in a strange way, I think this makes them not less literary, but more literary, in that they are, if you like, trying to tap in the total into the total imaginative experience of um uh, exper- of undergoing the process of reading a novel. Uh, so I think uh, the the kind of text versus movement uh, dichotomy is a bit misleading in relation to their work. That's really fascinating because obviously, as as you've illustrated, it depends a lot on the selection of the work. I mean, they need to choose something that's that's really going to lend itself to that kind of total immersion. Uh, but it also, in a way, that dichotomy, that that false binary, as you call it, uh, precludes the idea that literature itself is a multi-sensory experience. That actually, reading is and and works often bring in all sorts of other senses, not just the, the, the sort of eye-brain connection. Well, of course, this is really fascinating because, as you know, there's a physiological research that suggests that, that reading a book when you're totally immersed in it is closer to actually experiencing what the book describes than, for instance, watching a movie or a TV show. And I think that the complete uh, sensory uh, um, uh, sort of uh, uh, bath of experience that you get with complicity is more like being a good reader than it is with, um, uh, uh, to, say, uh, to, to, to just sitting in the stalls and letting a straightforward adaptation flow over you. Well, you're right. Immersed is, is the word. When you're immersed in in a book, you're in its world. That's what we say, isn't it? You feel like you're in the world of the book. And I guess that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to put you in a world. Um, but it's a it's a fascinating idea because actually that false binary that you name is around quite a lot 
that that's kind of what that is i think what what people assume that it's that it, because it's physical theater it can't also be you know interested in text or narrative or you know kind of uh, uh, literature um so what about this production then how did they translate it to the stage i got the idea from your piece that it was a very it's it, well and from what you say it's a very holistic thing it's very holistic but it's also built around the monologue of Tokarchuk's central character, um, Janina Dusheko, who's a kind of um, 60-something eccentric living in the woods in the Polish countryside near the Czech border. The novel is her soliloquy, and remarkably, the production is her soliloquy as well. She's there on stage, from beginning to end. Sometimes she breaks off to act in separate scenes, but she always comes back to this direct address to the audience. So that in itself is an unashamedly literary way of mounting a stage production. There's also, it's it's a very strong voice and it's very singular. I mean, I was trying to think of a word for it for singular. I mean, it's pretty, it's quite weird, isn't it? It's quite a weird narrative. It's quite an odd voice, the way she talks. Well, she is um, um, she's very much her own person. Yes, and, um, <laughs> that's a better way of putting it. Yes, <laughs> yeah, uh, uh, and she's she's both very wise and very eccentric. And the way this happens on the page is that she uses, or rather, Tkachuk uses capital letters a lot uh, and this gives an emphasis a flavor a rhythm to the monologue uh, and of course you can't do that on stage but what you can do is to convey uh, in the voice the degree of idiosyncrasy in the way that Janine tells her story um, and uh, this I think Amanda Hadding did uh, with incredible prowess and um, uh, commitment and also the, of course the, the, this sort of um, offbeat humour that runs all the way through the book and all the way through the show. When you say letters that she sometimes she puts things in capital letters that also for me was a very Blakeian that was part of the Blakeian strand of it did they I mean his his spirit and his some of his lines run throughout the book did they did they get him in as well Oh, absolutely. Yes. I mean, the book is in many ways a sort of um, a constant uh, homage to William Blake, whom Janina uh, translates and reads and almost worships as the sort of apostle of the respect for nature and respect for, for all living creatures, which is what she upholds and espouses. Uh, so you not only get uh, Janina quoting Blake, but you get um, Blake couplets um, emblazoned uh, over uh, the set as kind of massive surtitles. Um, the, the work in particular that um, runs through the whole book is the auguries of innocence with its um, prophetic warnings of what will happen if you disrespect the natural world it's about well it's about all sorts of things the book isn't it but 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 animals and their rights or their lack of rights the lack of rights that humans uh, give to them are integral to the story aren't they how how are they brought alive or evoked on stage 
Well, here we're back to something that complicity have always done with, with um, uh, massive um, delight and skill, which is to the to impersonate animals, to bring them to life um, through the movement of human actors. And they do this brilliantly. They're, there's a wonderful dog. There are lots of deer. There are birds. And uh, if you like, this isn't just um, a party piece although it is um, hugely virtuosic, uh, it's also a proof of what Tokarczuk believes, of what Janina believes, that all life is interrelated, that, that in a way different forms of life um, uh, will uh, repeat uh, and um, uh, mimic each other, uh, that we don't exist in, in separate domains. We're all part of um, the great um, wheel of nature, and we should respect every other spoke on that wheel. You did say that it was a bit binary when we're talking about the humans. It's kind of nice versus nasty. Does that get more complex or is that kind of the way it is? The book unfolds as a kind of fable and, and it's an ecological fable. It's a feminist fable and, and fables uh, demand a fairly clear contrast between light and dark. And you certainly get that in the the characters that Janina has her friends and her enemies. Her friends are mavericks and oddballs and outsiders, people who don't quite fit into conventional society. And her enemies, which are very, very funny in the way they're portrayed, are, if you like, the... the um, the small town bigwigs of the, this area of the Polish highlands, the, the the policeman, the priest, the head of the mushroom picker society, the guy who runs a, a really nasty exploitative fox fur farm, who also, as we learn, exploits human beings uh, as well. Um, so there is the, the sense of a fairly clear division, but it's occasionally complicated. Uh, there is a character who's the wife of the the local politician, the mushroom pickers president. And we see how she suffers, if you like, by not being able to live her own life, by being the, entirely the, the creature of other people's expectations. Whereas Janina and her band of misfits have um, chosen freedom and in a way enjoy themselves much more as a result. That idea of the, the 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 sort of fabula, I mean, it goes hand in hand with a kind of timelessness, a sort of I don't know, I suppose a kind of ahistoricity uh, in the prose. And I wonder how that came across uh, in in the stage production, whether it felt like it was something almost out of place, out of time, divorced from the world beyond this kind of area, and divorced from from the time as well. That that's really interesting because I I think you're right. There is a, this fairy tale quality in the staging. Um, it's very dark. We we follow the life of the Polish forest through the year. Uh, it's uh, often shrouded in gloom with the the stars whirling overhead. There's fantastically expressive video work by Dick Straker. And the set by Ray Smith has this great sense of twilight gloom. Uh, and, of course, we're in the forest and it is 
a, a fairy tale forest. Uh, it's a place where unlikely and outlandish things happen. It's a place where good and evil will clash and where truth will be revealed. And all of that um, uh, slightly timeless, um, uh, fabular quality is very much uh, conveyed by the complicity sta staging, I think. As a fable, it's quite a dark fable, isn't it? Well, I think you have to take Olga Tokarczuk seriously. She's not striking a pose. She's not putting on an act. Her rage at the kind of exploitation of nature and with it, the exploitation of people, especially women, that um, Janina expresses is very deep-rooted and is a key to her work. And, of course, it has made her a fairly controversial figure in Poland because she does go against tradition. She does upset the hunters and the believers and the rural conservatives. Um, they don't think of her simply as a, a charming eccentric. She has real enemies. And, and I think the darkness of her vision in the book and in this production does come through. She's deadly serious about the damage that people do to the planets and to their fellow creatures. And I don't think we're ever allowed to forget that. This is what struck me before. There's a phrase, uh, I think it's Janina, it was one of her kind of, uh, it's, I think she's talking to somebody else, she's trying to convince them. And 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 she, she kind of talks through the horrors of the amount of, of death and destruction that goes on every day to, to the animals and, and talks about, um, uh, you know, carrying bags made of skin um uh, you know and she's talking about you know kind of handbags and leather shoes and 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 things like that but the way she talks about it is so deeply felt and actually does it actually strikes horror into you doesn't it and and and, and as you say you think Tokarczuk and presumably complicity are saying well it should it should strike horror into yeah. you yes yeah and and it for me it, it's impossible to read the book and see the show without thinking about the other great Polish-born um, literary supporter of animal rights, um, the Yiddish writer Isaac Beshevis Singer. And when uh, Singer in the 60s said, wrote that, that for the animals, it is an eternal Treblinka, people were outraged. They said, Mr. Singer, how can you say this? And he said, I am deadly serious. I've never been more serious about anything. Uh, and uh, uh, obviously, Tokarczuk has, um, I think, inherited some of that. I must say, one of the things that, that occurred to me on reading your piece, which was just so interesting, was was whether they might, anyone might dare to take on her next work, The Books of Jacob, which, of course, is enormous yeah, and a historical yeah. epic and a yeah. picaresque and many different stories in one huge book i guess it's would we think that could ever come to the stage well i think um if anyone could do it maybe complicity could they've 
managed to work their magic on the most unlikely source texts. Um, and I don't think sheer length has ever deterred them. So mm. who knows? <laughs> who knows? Boyd, many thanks for talking to us today. And um, I know that we've been talking about a London theatre production, which, of course, most people can't get to. But Drive Your Plough will be touring until June. And if you can't get to the theatre, it will be broadcast on the 27th, 28th and 29th of April while it's on at the Lowry in Salford. Still to come on the show, we travel back in time in the company of two Victorian explorers. And if you've enjoyed what we've discussed so far this week, let me remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast for free wherever you normally get your podcasts and you'll never miss an episode. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile unlimited premium wireless. Ready to get 30 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20 20, 20 ready to get 20 20, ready to get 15 15, 15 15, just 15 bucks a month. So, give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 up front for 3 months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Welcome back to the TLS podcast. I'm Alex Clark. In 1857, two British adventurers set off from Zanzibar in search of what we're told in Candice Millard's new book was still the holy grail of exploration, the source of the Nile. They were John Hanning Speak and Richard Burton, and to put it mildly, they didn't get on. Indeed, they were still arguing over the truth of who had found what so bitterly that the Royal Geographic Society organised a debate to settle the question long after they'd come back. It never happened because after all his daring exploits, Speak managed to fatally shoot himself on a hunting trip in Wiltshire the day beforehand. One result is that over a century and a half later, the books about their expeditions keep on coming. Barnaby Phillips has reviewed Millard's River of the Gods in this week's paper and joins us now. Welcome, Barnaby. Thank you, Alex. Now, 
set the scene for us back in 1857. These two men, very different indeed, decide to go on a perilous journey together. Why did they? What did they hope to find? And why was it so important to them to find it? I think they were both driven by a personal sense of adventure and a desire, perhaps more in the case of John Hanning speak, for glory uh, and, if you like, vindication in the eyes of the British establishment. I think John Hanning speak is a much more conventional figure, uh, prim and puritanical, Candace Millard calls him, from an aristocratic background, an army officer, someone who loves to uh, shoot big game wherever he goes. And Richard Burton is a much more complex, intriguing figure, a British in name only, Candace Millard calls him. Uh, a polyglot, I think he speaks 29 languages, uh, a career of extraordinary variety. Uh, he's made his way to Mecca in disguise. Uh, he's translated the Karma Sutra. Uh, he's an atheist. He scandalizes Victorian society, but Victorian society also falls for him. Uh, he's pursued by beautiful women. He's a, he's a very interesting, unique character and as 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 Candace Millard says it is the holy grail the source of the Nile for those who know the geography of course the African Nile has two tributaries there's the Blue Nile which comes out of the Abyssinian highlands well people have known that Europeans have known that since the 17th century but Europeans have not known uh, where the White Nile the greater southern branch they meet at Khartoum where that comes from and all efforts to go down the River Nile have ended in the great swamps of what is today South Sudan. So it is a great mystery uh, and the two men are, are driven on. So they weren't the first. People had sort of foundered in this swamp territory and it had become something that everybody worth their salt wanted to discover. But why did they team up if they were so very different and presumably in some way in competition with one another? They were put together by the Royal Geographical Society, and it was an ill-fated partnership. In fact, the signs had already been there on an earlier unhappy expedition uh, where they'd crossed from Aden into uh, what eventually became British Somaliland, so if you like the, the, the horn of Africa, the tip of Africa. That ended disastrously. They went back to Britain, uh, not getting on terribly well. Uh, the speak went off to the Crimean War. The, the omens were not good when they gathered uh, the second time down in Zanzibar, deciding to go further down the coast and move across from there, which was the right idea. Uh, as you said, those who tried to go upriver all the way up the Nile had floundered in, 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 in the swamps. Uh, so it, it was the right idea, but it, things quickly went wrong. They were very incompatible. I'd, I'd say, in fact, maybe the only thing they did have in common was their extraordinary physical courage and endurance, because they kept going for month after month after month on foot, attacked by wild animals, often so sick and diseased that they had to pause for weeks on end, uh, malaria, we would assume, typhoid, at one point, a beetle crawls up Speak's ear and he gouges it out with a penknife and his whole face is covered in boils. 
he loses his sight at one point, he goes deaf, and yet somehow they stagger on and on. Tragically, they are more and more contemptuous of each other the further the expedition goes. But the real enmity comes after the return, when Speak claims the glory and says that he has discovered the source of the Nile, and Burton is bitter and furious at what he sees as a betrayal. I mean, I'm no doctor or indeed explorer, but gouging out a beetle with a penknife, it's not going to go well. Uh, and parts of it do continue to come out of his ear, if you really want oh, that detail. I do, actually. Off. Go on. Yeah, oh, parts gosh. of it do come out with wax many months later. Wow. Oof. Um, yes, quite. It does. It sounds almost like a sort of ripping yarn. The idea that they just absolutely—they basically already hated each other and had already been on an expedition which hadn't gone well—and they just kind of gritted their teeth and gouged the beetles out of their ears and carried on. Um, and was it that Burton thought that Speak had taken the um, the glory of it, or they disagreed about the actual the actual source about the about where they thought it originated from? It, it was it was both. Um, what happened was that Burton had to stop three quarters of the way across what is today Tanzania. They had already been to Lake Tanganyika, which is on the very uh, western side of Tanzania. Uh, and Burton had believed that this would be the source of the Nile. Uh, they realised that it wasn't. Uh, Burton was too sick to carry on. And Speak carried on to the lake, which he christened uh, Lake Victoria. Uh, an interesting difference, by the way, a telling difference of, of their personalities was that Burton thought it was absurd to name a lake in the middle of Africa after a British queen. But uh, Speak was, was keen to do so. Speak instantly decided, more or less correctly, as it, as it, as it were, that Lake Victoria, the Lake Nyanza, it was called by the people who lived around it, was the source of the White Nile, although he had not yet travelled round to the northern part of the lake where the White Nile does indeed flow out of. He comes back to England, makes his announcement uh, and returns for a subsequent expedition without Burton and with a much more pliant companion, uh, a man called James Grant, who's never going to never going to question Speak's primacy in that second expedition, if you see what I mean. He, he accepts that Speak is, is very much in charge. And on that second expedition, they do find where the Nile does indeed flow out of the northern part of what we now call Lake Victoria, an, an enormous lake. But had they really found the source then? Or well, was it just somewhere where it came in? Or is it actually much more complicated than that? Well, that's a good question, Alex. You can go to a place called Burundi, which is to the uh, southwest of Lake Victoria, and you can go to a little village and you can find a place called Sos du Nil today, which uh, neither Speak nor Burton went near. Uh, and so if you accept that there are large rivers flowing into Lake Victoria and they originate in those highlands to the west and the southwest of Lake Victoria, you may well argue that they are the real source of the Nile. Mm. Likewise, the famous uh, mountains of the moon, the mythical mountains, the Ruanzoris, where rivers flow across 
uh, Uganda from there and meet up with the Nile at a later point. So it's not it's not clear cut, but I think you can make out a good case that Lake Victoria is what well, <laughs> it's definitely one of the most important sources of the Nile. And to that extent, Speak was right and Burton was wrong. But it's that thing, isn't it, of conquest. I mean, it's it's just inextricably linked with that idea of finding something, naming it, and in a sense, claiming it, when the truth might be rather more topographically, geographically, nationally complicated than that. But it, it was also linked with the idea of doing it for the glory of empire. I mean, I presume that's why you would indeed call a lake Victoria. It was a sort of gift to the Queen back home. Yes, and definitely Speak is more motivated in that way than Burton. I mean, this is this is an age of exploration that is happening at a certain time, and we are looking back at it at a certain time that is not mm. sympathetic to the values of that time, if you like. And I think that's something important to say about Candice Millard's book, that she she draws a link between the age of exploration and the scramble for Africa, which comes immediately afterwards. Uh, and she, she, yes, she, she sees Speak as an early imperialist. I think she tries to rectify that by introducing a third protagonist who is on the cover of her book, who is Sidi Mubarak Bombay, who is a guide who goes with Speak and Burton on their expedition and who is an enigmatic figure who is lauded by both of them in their journals, in their diaries. They, they have many kind words for him. He's clearly terribly important to them. Uh, he's given a silver medal. He's given a pension for life by the, by the British government. Uh, and Candace Millard makes out a good case that in his own way, he was a more important explorer than either of them because he carries on being used, if I can if I can use that word, by subsequent British explorers. When Stanley reunites with David Livingstone, uh, you know, a decade and a half later, well, Mubarak is Stanley's guide. Uh, when a man called Cameron, who's the first uh, European man to ever walk from the east to the west of, of Africa, uh, in I think in the 1870s, well, again, Sidi uh, Mubarak is by his side. In total, uh, Candace Miller thinks he might have walked some 6,000 miles frustratingly he doesn't have a voice we we have to try and divine his motives uh through for example speaks speaks observations of him and did they credit him at all in the literature of the time and when they returned from their expeditions and were giving talks and writing up reports and all this sort of thing was he known in any way well, he certainly didn't enjoy the popular acclaim of of people like uh, Speak or, or Burton. Uh, but I don't think he was ignored. As I say, he, he was given a pension for life. Uh, he, he was given a medal. Now, from the perspective of 2023, that doesn't seem particularly generous and it seems tokenistic and, I suppose... Uh, crudely uh, imperialistic. He is he is written out of history and Candace Millard has done her best to bring him back into history. So certainly, you know, within exploring circles, it was known that he was an extremely important man, 
uh, to have on your side uh, once you got to Zanzibar. You wanted to recruit him. You wanted to pay him well. But what is really going through his mind? I mean, there's one extraordinary moment when they're camping near Lake Victoria, stroke Nianza, uh, and uh, Speak wants to press on. City uh, Mubarak thinks this is a bad idea because a local guide hasn't turned up. And Speak punches him three times in the face till the blood flows down uh, his face. And Mubarak walks away, vows never to never to explore with Speak again. But he relents. A few hours later, he joins him. And we only have Speak's description of that event. What was Sidi Mubarak thinking at that moment? What was he generally thinking in these years in which he led uh, these, these white explorers in, into the heart of Africa? Africa. And we don't really know. I mean, by fortunate coincidence, when I was reading Candice Millard's book, at the same time, I was reading um, the book Paradise by Abdul Razak Gurna, the you know who won the the, the Nobel laureate of of Martyrdom. Um, it was a complete coincidence because he is also describing an expedition across Tanganyika, admittedly some 30 years later, the Germans have already arrived, so it is a German colony, but things haven't changed that much. You know, there's still slave trading and there's still these great, great caravans into the interior. Um, And that's a fictional account, obviously, but a a wonderful, haunting fictional account of a boy who's on on that caravan. And I'd suggest to listeners... Um, that if you want to get close to the minds of people like Sidi Mubarak, or indeed the hundreds of other porters, uh, uh, guides, all the rest of it, translators who are on these expeditions, because please don't think that Burton and Speak and Stanley and Livingston are wandering around by themselves, uh, then uh, then Abdul Razak Gurna's paradise is, is a good place to go. I should say as well, his own life is extraordinary. He's called Sidi Mubarak Bombay, because he was enslaved as a boy and taken the Arab slave trade across the Indian Ocean. That is the other slave trade and lives in Bombay, Mumbai, I think for some 20 years until his master dies. And then he's allowed to come back and he, he comes back to Africa. But he'd not been from the island of Zanzibar before. He was actually from, for those who know the geography, a little, some way south of the borders of, of what is today Mozambique and Tanzania. So his own life is an extraordinary odyssey, I suppose, of tragedy um, and adventure and and challenge. Um, So full credit to Candice Millard for elevating him up there uh, with Burton and Speak and putting him on on the cover. Um, And I don't think, you you know, I, I don't think we can hold it against her that he is bound to remain uh, an enigmatic figure unfortunately. I was fascinated by the afterlives I mean expeditionary and great great discovery afterlives are often uh, more interesting in a way once you get past the beetles and the and the swamps and the rest of it but they come back and they continue to fight and in the end they, they just decide to have a sort of showdown I think. That's right. They're going to meet in Bath. Well, in fact, they, they they physically see each other the day before the great debate. And it's, you know, d- metaphorically daggers drawn, Burton with that great intense stare of his. And then Speak goes off uh, for a bit of hunting. 
and he stumbles uh, preparing for for the for the forthcoming verbal duel with Burton and he stumbles over a wall and shoots himself in the stomach now inevitably the speculation was this a dramatic tragic suicide uh, moments before or on the eve of this epic showdown um, and Candace Millard plays with that idea quite a lot. I think other historians have given that idea shorter shrift. Uh, Candace Millard's argument is that Speak knew so much about guns. Indeed, he did. He was, he was obsessed with shooting whatever he saw, wherever he went. Um, and that he was also very well known for being very cautious with with his with his guns he, he you know always made sure if he's on a canoe that the you know the barrel was not pointing towards him and all the rest of him so how could he have been so stupid as to shoot himself uh in in the stomach and perhaps he really did mean to i think other historians have written about about these two figures and their rivalry i'm thinking of tim Geel in particular who wrote a book that came out some 10 15 years ago have said well you know, if he was really going to commit suicide, would he have done it stumbling over a wall? That that seems that seems unlikely. Um, Burton, meanwhile, carries on. I mean, he uh, he, he he carries on to further adventures. He's sent off to Fernando Po, the island off the West African coast, and he becomes a consul there, responsible for the the emergent british empire on on the west african coast having done all of this exploring on the east african coast having been uh, across arabia and all the rest of it uh, before that and this is where he intersects with your specialist subject benin isn't it it is alex yes in 1862 burton goes to the kingdom of benin in the interior of what is today Nigeria and becomes the first British official uh, to be greeted at the court there. Uh, and Burton is trying to stand up for the interests of British palm oil traders who are working on the rivers there. But he comes back and he writes a very caustic account of Benin. He calls it a place that stinks of death and he describes all the human sacrifice. And that is important because in 1897, just uh, three decades later, that idea of Benin as a city of blood is very, very strong in the British consciousness. And it helps provide the justification uh, for the British punitive expeditions sacking of Benin, uh, which leads to these objects, the Benin bronzes, these fabulous objects being uh, looted, plundered and being brought back to uh, Britain, which is which is a story um, I've I've researched in in my own book, Loot Britain and the Ben and Bronzes. So the, there's a link between Richard Burton and the subsequent invasion. Richard Burton's damning indictment of Benin, of Benin helped create the moral climate, if you like, uh, that enabled the British to invade Benin some decades later. And this is, I mean, as I understand it, and uh, your knowledge will dwarf mine by a magnitude of many millions I'm sure but it, it had maintained its independence Benin up until that point hadn't it yes I mean this is the tragedy from the point of view of the people of the Benin of the Benin Empire also known as the Edo they had been a powerful West African empire who had engaged peacefully with successive waves of 
European explorers, adventurers, of whom Richard Burton was one of the very last since the late 15th century. So they'd, they'd got on pretty well with the Portuguese who'd been coming back for centuries, then the Dutch, then the French, then eventually the British. And initially, that relationship with the British is harmonious. But by the mid 19th century, attitudes in Britain have hardened. The British, having been enthusiastic slavers, are now very much against the slave trade. There is a greater sense of moral superiority, a greater sense of racial superiority, a greater religious zeal. And although Richard Burton is not a typical British imperialist, uh, his his condemnation of Benin uh, is fuel to those British interests who do want to get rid of the Benin Empire by the late 19th century. Do you think he was aware of that? Because the way, as we were sort of talking about it earlier, and speak seems this much more sort of, as it were, kind of off the peg imperialist who we 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 thoroughly disapprove of his attitudes. But as you were describing it, Burton is the far more, he's a polyglot, he's, he's an enthusiast, he doesn't seem to be quite such a clear-cut example of the imperialist, but then he turns out to be precisely that. Was he aware of that, do you think? I think he's really complex, Alex. I think there's an, a temptation to see him in, in modern terms, maybe as a, as a more, as, I suppose, a more, symp- more sympathetic, broad-minded person. But I think that going down that route is a little bit anachronistic, actually. I think yes, it's it's a naive approach. It, I'm sure exactly. Candace Miller says something really interesting about him. Actually, he studied every religion and he respected none. Um, and so he was as contemptuous as the aristocratic British families with which he engaged. In fact, which he married into, uh, to the horror of his of his mother in law, um, as he was of the of the African kingdoms who, who, he, who he denigrated. So he, he, he's, he's very hard to, to, to pin down, uh, let alone to sort of position in today's culture wars, if you follow me. Well, listen, Candice Millard's book does sound like it's sort of joining a, a body of literature that helps us understand a little bit more of that. We're, we're kind of running out of time, but I can't possibly let you go without asking you about elephants. Oh, thanks, Alex. Well, my, well my day, you I'm... know, it's important, right? <laughs> it is important. What you work in is a sort of pan-African organisation uh, uh, for the protection and conservation of, of elephants. Is that right? That's right. And what I find particularly interesting, one of the many things I find fascinating about elephants is that they still exist in the wild in 36 African countries. So people think of elephants and they think of, you know, Kenya, Botswana, South Africa, they don't think of Liberia, Eritrea, Senegal, Nigeria, Mali. It's these countries which I find particularly interesting. They make up the majority of the elephant's range. And yet in the majority of these 36 countries, there are less than a thousand elephants surviving. And so that range across Africa is on the verge of collapse if you like and the the most where well, people people always ask me oh are elephants about to become extinct and the short answer is no they're not elephants will survive i'm sure 
hopefully for decades, in a handful of well-managed game parks in East and Southern Africa, which may well be fenced in, which may well be little more than glorified zoos. The challenge is, are they going to survive in any way that resembles how they have survived in Africa for millennia across a much greater range? Can they survive in countries which have no wildlife tourism at all? Can they survive in countries where there are tiny fragments of rainforest left? I'm thinking of a country like Cote d'Ivoire, the Ivory Coast, where there's just a few hundred elephants in tiny patches of, of forest. Can they survive in a country like Nigeria with its breakneck demographic growth? Those are, are the critical questions for elephant conservation. Barnaby, thank you so much for coming to talk to us about Benin, about elephants and about the uh, strange world of the Victorian explorer. We really appreciated it. Thank you, Alex. And thank you, Lucy. It was a great pleasure. That's all we have time for this week. Our thanks go to Boyd Tonkin and Barnaby Phillips. And thank you for listening to this episode of the TLS podcast, produced by Lucy Ditchmont. We'll be back next week, but for now, from Lucy Dallas and from me, Alex Clark, goodbye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.